can. I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. You'll find, excuse me, Matthew chapter 26. And you'll find your place in verse 26. Um, in fact, I'll read to, to provide more context. We'll begin reading in verse, um, in verse uh, 17. While you're finding your place, let me say a few words by way of introduction. Someone once said that uh, a woman came to George Whitfield and asked him, why do you always preach that one must be born again? And in a clever moment, Whitfield replied to her, Madam, because you must be born again. Well, that's a clever and witty answer, but it doesn't really get at the answer to the question because there are many things that we say again and again or that we could say again and again which don't bear repeating. I tell my children regularly that they must brush their teeth and they must go to bed. But it's my earnest hope that a day will come when I can stop telling them, you need to brush your teeth and you need to go to bed. I repeat myself, but there's nothing profound in that idea. And what I'd like more than anything for them to do it thoughtlessly, regularly, without any asking. And yet there are other things, there are other truths that are so profound that they bear the weight of repetition. And so, in that example with George Whitfield, he recognized that the fact that we must be born again if we're ever to see the kingdom of God, if we're ever to enter into it, was a truth that was worthy of repetition. And this morning as we come to our passage, we're going to, be, we're going to see the first instance of a practice by which we proclaim a message again and again, as often as we do it. It's a practice that is undergirded by a truth that is so profound that we can never say it enough. And so if you've found your place in Matthew 26, would you follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 17? And I'll read to verse 35. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we ask for your grace. As you have given us grace that we cannot even perceive and cannot even comprehend. So high and so deep is your love for us. And yet we ask you even now for grace that you would cause us to understand your word. Cause us to believe it. Cause us to receive it in our hearts. Cause us to trust it and know it so that as we are about to do, as we take up this memorial meal of remembrance, we would do so knowing that we are proclaiming the death of Christ and we are proclaiming our hope in his coming. So we pray that you would write these words on our minds and in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I said that there are some weights, some truths, that is, that are weighty enough that they can bear the weight of repetition. You would find it strange if you went to a church week after week and for 52 straight weeks the minister spoke about nothing but the importance of giving generously. If one sermon spoke on the subject, you would not think it off, but after 12 months of it, you would say something is amiss here. Something is out of balance. And yet that same minister can proclaim the excellencies of Christ week after week, can proclaim the truth and the necessity of the cross month by month, and week by week, and day by day, and we would never grow tired of, it, tired of it. Indeed, as the hymn writer wrote, we would say we love to tell the story, for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Some truths are profound and weighty and foundational, and they bear the weight of repetition. And yet the problem with repetition is that it can numb us to the profundity of these truths. If we don't think about what it is that we're saying and don't think about what it is that we are doing. Repetition can have a numbing effect. And George Whitfield recognized this. It's why he delighted so much in the truth of the new birth. Because all his youth he grew up practicing religion and trying to make himself right with God through the practice of religion, but there was nothing in that practice. There was no meaning in it for him. It was nothing more than ritual. And it was not until he understood that he needed God to cause him to be born again and understood that God had indeed done that for him and caused him to have a new life that he began to delight in the things that he was doing. And that's why he proclaimed again and again that you must be born again. In the same way, Christ, in these words of institution, gave his disciples a practice to continually keep, to a memorial by which they were to continually remember him and what he had done for them. But if we don't think about what it means, then we will grow numb to it, 
And we might think that what we need to do to solve this problem is to abandon the practice altogether or to do it less frequently when really what we need to do is remember what it is that we are proclaiming when we take the bread and when we take the cup and when we together proclaim Christ's death until he comes. Those practices are important. In 1 Timothy 4, verse 15, for instance, the Apostle Paul told Timothy, his protege, not to abandon regular habitual practices, but in preaching the word and in regular read, regularly reading the scriptures, Paul told him, practice these things, be in them, that is, immerse yourself in them so that your progress will be evident to all. Timothy's progress was directly tied to his continual practice and immersion of himself in certain things, certain profound truths and practices and realities that were going to have a shaping effect on him. And in the same way, this practice is something that we do together, by which we are shaped and by which we remember together why it is that we come together in the first place. And so to understand what it is that we are doing, I want to look at Matthew 26, particularly verses 26 through 29. But I read it in its larger context because I want you to understand it in that context. Because Matthew wants us to understand it in that context. And I can briefly give those contexts to you with three words. Passover, provision, and predictions. Passover, provision, and predictions. First, the Passover context. Flip back to the very first words of this chapter in Matthew 26, verse 1. There we read, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. In those words, Jesus directly tied his coming crucifixion to this Passover feast that the people of Israel were about to keep. And so again, in verse 17, we see the Passover is central and repeated in this passage. We see that word Passover three more times and a reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's the first day of that feast of seven days that accompanied the Passover. And so Jesus' disciples naturally come to him and say, where would you have us go to prepare the Passover feast? They were required by the law to eat it in the place that God had designated, that is, within the city of Jerusalem. And so Jesus sends them into the city. Apparently, he's already prepared where it's to be, telling them they're going to find a man, and that man is going to have a room prepared. And so they're to say, the teacher will eat the Passover with you. Show us the room where we're to eat it. And they do it, and it unfolds exactly as Jesus said it would. They say, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He tells them, go into the city. They meet the man, and so it is, just as he directed. But notice how he ties it to, again, his coming crucifixion. What he tells them to say, specifically, is that my time is at hand. Again, referencing back to the fact that he says the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The Passover feast was to coincide with his crucifixion. And that context is important. We must understand that what we're seeing here is the last Passover feast 
and a new feast that is going to be initiated. That Jesus is going to bring to fulfillment what the people of Israel had anticipated all these years as they have kept this Passover feast. What it pointed to, as we heard read from 1 Corinthians this morning, was that Christ, our Passover lamb, would be sacrificed for us. And so he's going to institute a new covenant meal, one that doesn't look back to that first Passover in Exodus chapter 12, but one looks back, that looks back to the last Passover, which he is about to accomplish. The second context that we need to be aware of is a context of provision. And here I want to call your attention to a few words in the words of institution. Notice what Jesus does. Notice what he says as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. Now listen as I turn back to Matthew chapter 14, and I read to you from this instance where Jesus feeds a multitude of 5,000 men along with their families. And as they find that they only have five loaves and two fish among them, and you're familiar with the story, he orders the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And again, if we look over in Matthew chapter 15, when he fed another multitude of 4,000 men and their families this time, we see again that there's only a handful of fish and seven loaves of bread. And in verse 36 there, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And here we see several terms which are repeated in the words of institution in Matthew 26, recalling in our minds that prior work of provision where Christ provided for a multitude and he provided even more than they needed. And it's as if Matthew is reminding us of that so that we read these passages together and understand that what Jesus is doing for his disciples and for us for all who would be his disciples throughout the ages, is he's doing an even greater work of provision, one that will provide for our greatest need more than we could even imagine. There's a third context that I want you to consider, and it's seen in the fact that I read more than just these words of institution. This is a context of prediction. Here, Jesus makes two startling predictions First, he predicts that one of his disciples will betray him. He predicts, namely, that Judas will betray, betray him. It's not quite clear to them which one is the predicted betrayer. It's clear to us because Matthew cues us in, as he has earlier in his gospel, letting us know that Judas, in fact, is the one who will go and do this. But all his disciples wonder and question, is it I? Is it I? Finally, it comes around to Judas, and he says, it's not really me, Rabbi. It's not me, is it? But if we just scan a little bit of the way up on our page to verse 14, we already know that Judas has resolved in his heart to do it. Whereas the other disciples are wondering if it could be them, he's 
being deceitful. He's trying to masquerade what he knows in his heart he's already resolved to do. But Jesus knows ahead of time that it's already him. And when he says that it's one who dipped his hand in this dish with me, they all would have dipped their hands in that dish with him. It's as if he's saying it's someone who's intimately close to me, someone who is indeed an intimate friend who will betray me. And it's, of course, Judas. But we read also another prediction that comes after these words of institution, where Jesus predicted that Peter and the other disciples, the eleven, would all abandon him. And in both cases, for Judas's prediction, or for Judas's betrayal, and for the abandonment of the disciples, it's something that was foretold in Scripture. For Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. That too was predicted. And for the disciples, he quotes from the words of the prophet Zechariah, where Zechariah says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And he says, this too is written and must come to pass. You will all abandon me. And yet we see how Jesus deals very differently with Judas and with the eleven. Though all of them betray him in some way, he deals differently with them. And so this lays a foundation, these three contexts lay a foundation for the three things that I want you to consider that we proclaim when we practice the Lord's table. When we practice this institution, our three proclamations are founded upon these three contexts and we'll work through them then in reverse. That context of prediction is the foundation for our proclamation of the grace of God. In this institution, we proclaim that God is gracious, and He has shown His grace to us by sending us His Son, Jesus Christ. How do we see that? Very simply, Jesus eats this meal with these disciples, though He knows what they are about to do. In the Gospel of Luke, in His account of this passage, the very first words that Jesus says as He initiates this meal is that I have greatly desired to eat this with you, He's anticipating this. He is looking forward to it. It's his great joy to share this Passover meal with his disciples. And yet he knows what they're about to do. And yet it is his gracious delight to invite him, invite them to partake in this new covenant meal and to assure them of God's grace and the grace that will be shown most profoundly in what he's about to do for them. You might ask, what made Peter and the disciples different from Judas. Why does he pronounce a woe upon Judas? And why does he pronounce words of blessing to the disciples? For even though they will betray him, he tells them that after he's risen, he will go before them to Galilee. That is, he will not abandon them. But as he will go before them, he will prepare for them and lead them in the mission for which he's going to commission them. He has a plan for them, They've abandoned him, but he will not abandon them. Why is it different? We might be tempted to say that there was something different in their response, that the disciples were not as bad as Judas. And in some sense, there is a deceitfulness that we've already acknowledged in Judas. There is a disingenuous reaction to Jesus' prediction. And yet the reality of the situation is that the 
foundation, there is no difference. That's the thing we need to recognize. There's no difference in them. The difference is in God's gracious choice. That God delighted to show grace to these 11 men who had abandoned him. We can find help if we turn over simply to Romans chapter 9. And you can turn there with me or you can listen as I read it. But here the Apostle Paul deals with this problem of God's sovereign choice. How it's so difficult for us to wrap our minds around. How God, for instance, in Israel's history, chose Jacob. But he did not choose his brother Esau. And he chose Jacob in the womb before they had done anything right or wrong. And the Apostle Paul there, considering this, says in verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. We can take that passage and what Paul says about Esau and Pharaoh and about Jacob and those whom he's prepared as vessels of glory and understand that Judas too was one who God had prepared for this purpose. And yet Judas is at the same time fully responsible for his actions. This is a paradox to us. It's hard to understand and it is nevertheless true. Consider how many times Judas had opportunity to repent. Even as Jesus is predicting what he will be, do, and Judas has already made the preparations, even as he pronounces a woe on that man, and yet Judas's heart is hard like Pharaoh's. And yet God is sovereign over it all. For this is simply in accordance with what was written, what God had said. And we ought not to wonder or that is, we not, ought not to find injustice with God, but rather we ought to wonder and marvel that God would be so gracious to prepare us and call us vessels of mercy. We don't deserve it. The eleven didn't deserve it. But God gave them grace. And so as we partake in this element, we need to remember, we don't deserve to come to this table, but because of God's wonderful grace, he invites us and gives us this privilege. He says we're vessels of mercy. And he invites us to take and eat. And remember that he is the one. Christ is our Passover lamb who shed his blood, who poured it out for us, so that we might receive his great grace. And so in keeping this feast, 
we proclaim the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God our Father. We also proclaim Christ's sacrifice for sins. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 11, we proclaim Christ's death until He comes. Notice what Jesus says. This is my body. Take, eat. And He breaks it. And He says, this is a cup. Take this cup. And He gives thanks and He gives it to them. And then saying this, He says, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. With these words, Jesus recalls something he said earlier in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. I think you probably know these words well. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as what? A ransom for many. For many. He gave it to redeem many from the curse of the fall. He gave it to redeem many from their sins. And here Jesus says, my blood is about to be poured out. And so he takes this cup and invests it with new symbolic meaning. No longer will it simply be something that was used in the Passover to reflect upon what God had done in bringing his people out of Egypt through the Exodus. But now God would use it, has ordained it, as a way by which we remember the greater Exodus, the one by which Christ has led us out of the slavery that plagues us all, slavery to sin. And so he says it's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in this way, he interprets what he's about to do on the cross. He does not die only as an example, though it is an example to us. He does not die only to prove his victory over sin and death and Satan. Though by his death and resurrection, he is victorious but he dies for us in our place as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And even now, before he goes to the cross, he tells his disciples, this is how you're to understand what I'm about to do. We could imagine on their minds a question much like the question that Isaac asked his father when they went to Mount Moriah. Father, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where is the lamb? And the answer is the same. God will provide the lamb. God will provide the sacrifice. And we look here and we say, we have the bread and we have the cup, but where is the sacrificial lamb? Christ would be that sacrificial lamb, offered as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. And so, just as we proclaim the grace of God, we proclaim the sacrificial atoning death of Christ as we partake of this feast. And finally, we proclaim that His kingdom is here and it is coming. Indeed, it is present now, but we will see it in its fullness someday. As Paul says again in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. as often as you do this, you proclaim His death until He comes. And so too, in Jesus' words, He points forward to the coming of His Father's kingdom in these final words of institution when He says, I tell you, I will not drink of, again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He's given us this as an institution to practice regularly. There's no prescription about how frequently we ought to do it, but we ought to do it regularly. 
And as often as we do it, we look forward to that day when he will partake of it with us. See, he says, though his disciples will start the practice of partaking of this institution day by day and week by week and month by month and year by year, he will not partake of the fruit of the vine, he says, until a coming day when he partakes of it in a new creation and a new kingdom. And thus, he says, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, I will not partake of it until then. And look at these two words as well. For in these two words, with you is that promise of grace, that promise that we will be with him as partakers in that kingdom because of what he's done for us. Isn't that amazing that he looks forward to a day when he will once again gather with all his disciples and joyously celebrate, joyously partake in a feast with us. We'll be there with him. The Apostle John in the book of Revelation looks forward to that day and calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we look forward to that day whenever we partake of this covenant feast, we can call it. We call it a feast, though these elements are meager in comparison to the feast that we're used to. But in the provision that they provide, they, provide, they don't provide all we need, but they symbolize that which provides all we need. They symbolize the one who's provided for us so that we can someday look forward to the enjoyment of that kingdom in its fullness. The kingdom he calls my father's kingdom, which in many other places he refers to as your father's kingdom when he speaks to his disciples. We go to that kingdom with hope, and so as we wait for the coming of that kingdom in its fullness, and we recognize that we experience that kingdom even now, when we partake of this feast together, we anticipate that kingdom joyfully, thanking God for his gracious provision in Christ. Now finally, I want to reflect on one other word, one other word in these words of institution, that word covenant. He doesn't just say, this is my blood. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. Just as in the old covenant, when God brought his people out of Egypt and made a covenant with them, now Jesus is instituting a new covenant, one not like the old covenant, where certain obligations were placed upon the people of Israel. This covenant is different, this new covenant, because all the things that are required, all the obligations he will fulfill for us by being perfect, by going and becoming a sacrifice in our place so that we might be made righteous, not in our own righteousness, but for, through faith in him and having his righteousness applied to us so that our covenant obligations are fulfilled not by works but through faith. And this is a sign of that covenant as we partake of it. And what is a covenant but a promise, a firm and binding promise that God will do what he has said he will do? We know that in all that he says, God speaks truly, but there are times when he makes covenants. He made a covenant with Abraham and swore an oath by himself. He made a covenant with Israel. And he makes a covenant with us through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we know that all that he has promised is sure. 
that he will surely bring it to pass. Because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? And so, as we prepare our hearts and our minds to participate in this meal together, remember and reflect upon what it is that we proclaim and the foundations upon which those proclamations rest. We proclaim the grace of God. We proclaim the death of Christ in our place for us. And we proclaim that he will come and gather us into his Father's kingdom. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the table. Father in heaven, we thank you. We praise you. You indeed are glorious and you make your glory known through your gracious love for us. Indeed, you make your glory known at times through your justice and righteousness that you pour out on those who rebel against you and refuse to repent. And yet they only serve in contrast so that we might know the great grace and mercy that we have received because of your Son and because of your great grace. So we thank you and we praise you and we worship you. We pray that you would receive our worship as a humble offering, as an offering of praise because of what you've done for us. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to partake in this table, to partake in it well, to partake in it fully trusting, not in ourselves or our own merits, fully trusting in you and what you've done for us. For we can only come to this table qualified in the qualifications that you impute to us, not the qualifications that we earn, for we cannot earn them on our own. We acknowledge this. We praise you for it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.